Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. And this is Molly. Molly, since uh, this episode is about the art form of burlesque, yes. I'm going to start it off with one word. Okay. Dita. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, Molly? I do, mainly because people who date Marilyn Manson always interest me somehow. You always get such foxy ladies. Dita Von Teese. Yes, she actually married Marilyn Manson. She did, briefly. Yes. But she did marry her. Dita Von Teese, if you don't know, because I actually didn't know for a little while, and I kept seeing um, these like red carpet photos when I would take brain breaks on um, trashy blogs, and I would see all these photos of this super... Super fine lady <laughs> named Dita Von Teese. And, uh, she's got this very retro look, jet black hair, yeah. bright red lips and kind of paler skin. And, uh, and I, I thought to myself, who is this, this creature <laughs> of beauty? And Dita Von Teese is considered the queen, today's queen of burlesque. Yes. Yeah. But I think that as soon as, I think what Dita Von Teese has had to say is that I'm, I'm not a stripper. I think that that's sort of when you see Dita Montes and you hear about um, burlesque with you know pasties and and lingerie, it's all of a sudden oh it must it must be kind of like glorified stripping. Yeah, I mean she has posed you know for certain fetish magazines and things like that, but we are here today to uh, talk about whether or not burlesque is the same thing as stripping and kind of how it all originated because it has a pretty fascinating history. And today, um, there are a lot of new burlesque troops that are popping up. I know that when I was in college, um, there was a group of girls who formed a burlesque troupe and I went and saw them perform here in Atlanta where you and I are based. Um, there are, there's at least one burlesque troupe that, uh, that I know of. So kind of got us thinking about what, what is this burlesque? Well, tell people what it was like to see a burlesque show, because there may be people who, even though we've mentioned the fabulous Dita Von Teese and this idea that it's similar to stripping, may not know what we're talking about. So just kind of describe a show to us. Well, today, if you go to a burlesque show, well, I will relate my own experience at um, a That's burlesque show. That's all we can show. ask, Chris. All you can ask is for my, for my stories. 
and my stories are what I'll give you. Um, so, uh, it was basically, um, Every girl kind of had her own persona. Mm-hmm. I think that there was one one that comes to mind um, was a girl who I knew fairly well who was dressed up like cowgirl, and she came on stage and there was some kind of you know hokey country song um, that she danced to and basically did a kind of striptease, which I did feel kind of kind of awkward at times, like watching watching my friend strip. In front of me, but she was good. Did know. she get completely naked? She did not get completely naked. The most naked that girls got were down to um, their underwear, or even if they were very daring, they they had um, some pasties with tassels, tassels, tassels on them, and could do some fancy, fancy twirling. But yeah, I mean, it was out at a it was at a bar, you know. So obviously, like there weren't live live nude women running around anywhere. And of course, and they stayed on stage, Mm -hmm. you know, they would kind of, they they would tease the audience as they would, you know, uh, hence strip tease. Um, But it was never anything of, uh, you know, there weren't any lap dances or anything (laughs) like that involved. It was very theatrical. Right. And that's always sort of what I had thought about when I thought about burlesque was sort of a strip tease, um, crazy costumes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like uh, lots of feathers. Uh, You always see, um, Dita Montes has these fabulous outfits. She kind of dances around with a martini glass. So I thought it was just that, just the women dancing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I I never really thought it was stripping per se, but I did not realize it had kind of this um, vaudeville history. Like it was almost sort of just like theater that happened to include weird costumes. In the 1800s, when burlesque really gets off the ground, it, it's sort of a general term that's applied to, you know, just comic plays and, and musicals and non-musicals and just sort of kind of hokey theater. Yeah, and if you went to a show in the 18, late 1800s, you were probably going to see um, all these skits that kind of just poked fun at society. Mm-hmm. I was reading these descriptions of burlesque, and they said, surprisingly to me, that Shrek 2 was almost a good example of burlesque because it was making fun of so many things mm-hmm. in our society. So it was almost like they would take a popular like show or play at the time and then just make it completely silly. And that was a burlesque show. It wasn't always just women kind of dancing about. Right. And this really started in Britain in the Victorian age. And this idea of women, like women weren't in- immediately stripping at that point. Like right. there was no striptease in uh, old school burlesque. But... Women were wearing a lot fewer clothes than a normal Victorian woman walking on the street would have. And this idea of seeing a woman in more of her just bare female form was pretty groundbreaking. Well, it sounds like it was even just groundbreaking to have the woman on stage in the first place. So already you've got kind of this upended idea of whether women should be on a stage and if so, what role they should be playing. Because rather than, you know, singing an aria in the great theater halls, they were on stage in a ridiculous costume, like singing hokey parodies of opera. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, going coming over to the U.S., the first big um, burlesque troupe that sort of took over the New York scene was a British burlesque troupe run by a woman named Lydia Thompson. And this idea of not only, you know, these more scantily clad women, um, but them playing all, it was an all-female troupe, and they were playing all the roles, including the roles of the more sexual aggressors. And, um, you know, these productions were written, and the whole operation was run by women in the 1860s. So the idea of not only these kind of scantily clad women who are performing on stage without men, but they're playing all of the parts and everything is written and produced and run by women is a pretty, pretty progressive 
thing for its day. Yeah, and so they're they were denounced. They didn't get necessarily good reviews from the good upstanding citizens, which only made it more popular as this underground kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as time went on, the fact that they had women who were willing to not wear as many clothes as those out on the street with their hoop skirts and all that were wearing kind of started to become the signature. It didn't stop um, all the skits that even males were involved in. But, you know, at some point, the feminine wit, witty song that they were singing while they were scantily clad became less important than the fact that they were scantily clad. Yeah, and, and burlesque shows, too, uh, were taken over by um, men who were running them. And they did, you know, obviously um, realize that their audience liked to see ladies in there and their pasties. But I like how um, they kind of slid into it accidentally. But I liked reading in this history of burlesque that we found at Musicals 101, how they kind of, it was, you know, it was a slippery slope into scandal. Uh, one of the biggest burlesque stars of the early 20th century was a dancer named Millie DeLeon. Uh, she was very attractive and she would toss her garters into the audience um, to get a reaction. But occasionally, Whoops, she forgot to wear tights. Oh, no. <laughs> so she would get arrested. And that's also what helped to give burlesque its raunchy reputation. So if you were a proper vaudeville performer traveling the way that these burlesque shows traveled from town to town, mm-hmm. um, you know, this was lowest common denominator. This was, you know, scamps who wouldn't put their tights on. Yeah, you would think you would kind of graduate from burlesque up to vaudeville. And then if you were in vaudeville and you were having a really tough time of it, you would um, go under an assumed name and then start performing in burlesque again. But going back to the evolution of the strip tees, we really have um, a pair of brothers called the Minsky brothers to thank for that. And these were burlesque pr- promoters in New York who really put the strip tees on stage instead of something that men would have to pay extra for to see um, in more private quarters. And uh, once the Great Depression rolls around, the Minsky brothers were like, hey, well, the men are still paying to see the women stick around. They don't want to come in and see some guy ham it up on stage in a, in a clown outfit. <laughs> um, and so that's when the idea of stripping really kind of takes off because it was just something in the Great Depression to keep audiences around, which is so depressing. <laughs> Well, it was a depressing time. Yes. So that does become the focal point. But then, you know, as time goes on, then you have pornography and you don't necessarily need to go watch a woman strip, do a strip tease. You can go somewhere and watch women just strip. Right. And that's and that's a separate category. I think the point of this is that that's a separate category from burlesque, because at the same time, you still have, you know, the fan dancer Sally Rand and then um, Gypsy Lowe's Rose Lee, who back in the day was kind of the Dita Von Tease of her time, who was one of the most famous um, burlesque performers who wasn't she wasn't stripping down to everything. Well, it's still, you know, there's still some element of comedy. Like, do you really want to watch someone strip kind of while they're trying to do comedy about society? You know, there's an article in Esquire in 1964 that described how one burlesque performer played her strip for laughs and one of her breasts accidentally pops out of the costume, Mm -hmm. which, you know, they they weren't getting completely naked. They had, you know, costumes on. And she was like, oh, tell it you like it. It'll make it grow. And, you know, I I don't know much about why men like stripping, but I would think that you wouldn't want puns and jokes when you're stripping. I I would say that men probably don't go to strip clubs for laughs. (laughs) Um, but then, uh, you know, and then around the turn of the century, we have more of these vice laws coming out and the mayor of New York, you know, tries to shut down all of these, um, any burlesque clubs and of course any sex clubs as well. And it kind of dies down in the fifties and the sixties. 
And now we're in what they call the neo-burlesque revival, because Mm -hmm. now that we do have things like pornography and strip clubs permeating our culture, it's almost like a novelty to have a performance where a person doesn't get completely naked and makes it sort of a show. And that's where we get into the argument. Is a female sort of reclaiming her body on stage or is she still just doing glorified stripping? Yeah, and this all kind of happens, it starts off in the mid-1990s, but it really doesn't take off until, I think, around 2002. And now you have um, uh, Club Noir in Glasgow, which is the world's biggest burlesque club, and it attracts up to 2,000 people per night. So it's become it's become very popular, but like you said, there is this argument of whether or not women are simply debasing themselves by putting on these glitzy outfits and then slowly taking them off. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to remember people, I was reading in the New York Times how people go to burlesque shows expecting to see sort of this striptease, the women dancing around and get really surprised when it's sort of the old style burlesque show where you might first have a skit by men on roller skates Mm -hmm. making fun of society. And, you know, people are like, well, where are the the artful strippers? And, you know, if if you are going to burlesque show, it, it might be that sort of old style. And another interesting thing about um, burlesque today is if you, you know, if you walk into like a big strip club, uh, you're probably going to be a minority if mm-hmm. you are a woman. Yeah. But if you go to a burlesque club, a majority of the, the audience are women who go to see these really uh, awesome vintage costumes that they have. They like the comedy and all of that. And it's more of a, like, it'd be something fun to go see, you know, with a date rather than, you know, going to see like women just stripping like in the graduate when Dustin Hoffman takes yeah <laughs> the daughter to that to that club um so that's sort of on the plus side of whether this is good for females or not good for females if a female can watch it the argument goes then that has to be empowering if the person on the stage has you know a different body type let's say than mm-hmm. what's commonly accepted as the stripper body type then isn't that good for women so that's those are a few of the arguments people will throw out as to why this is empowering, because you're not completely stripping. You can make it artsy. Women like to watch it. And it, there's no you know set body types this appeals to. Right. But at the same time, on the other side of that argument, you have people who are saying, wait, this is stripping. Women are getting down to, you know, next to nothing. And um, some uh, some towns in England are trying to pass laws to make um any clubs that have burlesque shows have to have the same licenses as a strip club would have to. Right. Because, you know, on the other side of the coin, you still are, it's still an objectification of a woman's body. How different at the end of the day can that be than stripping if you're still saying, here's my body, look at it, love it, pay me money? Well, what about this though, Molly? Um, a lot of times burlesque, um, is usually considered more of a hobby than a profession because these costumes that women buy uh, to perform in are not cheap. Oh, no, I wouldn't think such beautiful things could be cheap. No, such feather fans <laughs> and fancy, fancy jewels. No, it's not It's not very cheap. And, um, and women also think that, you know, as opposed to stripping where you walk in and, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot of just women kind of all in G-strings, you have... Uh, burlesque performers create these entire characters around who they are. Like the, you know, one of the keys of being good at burlesque is you have to create your own, um, kind of persona, burlesque persona to stand out. And it's not just a female hobby. While, you know, we tend to think about people like Dita Von Teese and we're talking about all these jewels and feather dresses, et cetera. I mean, there are male burlesque troops. Mm-hmm. What, what are their troops names? I don't have the paper. Yeah, there's me. one, um, 
I think this is according to you, yes, the BBC, um, there's a popular act called Burlesque and the Dream Bears. It's a male burlesque troupe. So saucy, saucy. I like that. So that's the thing is we have this argument going on right now. Um, is it a saucy, fun entertainment where everyone just kind of gets to be themselves in a non-threatening manner? Or as we'll see, whatever shakes out of Britain in the next few months, is it, is it stripping and they're getting away with something? Yeah. But I think it is, it is important to realize that, um, you know, there is, I think there is at the end of the day, a very big difference between, um, burlesque and stripping because, you know, the point of stripping isn't to, you know, perform and I don't know, entertain and show off like comedic wit at all. It's, you know, to get naked. (laughs) Whereas with burlesque, it is more of an entire production. Right. But both make people uncomfortable because just because burlesque can be campy, it doesn't mean it's not arousing. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, is, Societies will probably always be uncomfortable with things that are designed to provoke and arouse. Yeah, it's still very sexually provocative. And I would say even more provocative sometimes because the women, like you mentioned earlier, aren't actually getting completely naked. I mean, the fact that we have, you know, such, you know, quick access to, you know, whatever kind of, um, I don't know, pornography you want to see, you know, this idea of a woman not even or a man. If you're, if you're a dream bear, um, getting down to just next to nothing and just taking you up to that point and then kind of dropping you off and walking off the stage is almost, I would say, even more provocative. So I think, Molly, this is the time to turn it over to our listeners. I would like to know what you guys think about burlesque and whether or not, um, it is something that's a positive form of entertainment or if you think that it should just be equated with, uh, with stripping and more heavily regulated. All right. It's up to you guys. Yes. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Men, women, please tell us your thoughts. Or your just your thoughts on why Dita Von Tees might have married Marilyn Manson. Yes. And Dita, if you're listening, just let me know. <laughs> and speaking of writing in, I got a couple emails to read. We've gotten so many responses from you guys. Great stories from uh, the episode on uh, whether women should give up their maiden names. And I have one from Catriona, a.k.a. Cat in L.A. And she says, I felt you two missed a point that irks me personally. I'm sorry, Cat. Maiden names aren't really feminine. For example, if I was getting married and was choosing between my fiancé's name and my maiden name, what I'm really choosing between is my fiancé's name and my father's name. Even my mother's maiden name is really my grandfather's name. All of my choices are men's name, and no last name is truly my own. Which is a very good point that Kat brings up. Yep, men always men. keeping the ladies down. And uh, now I've got one from Michelle. And uh, she says, you mentioned a bit about world traditions. And I wanted to add that in many countries in Asia, though the child takes the father's name, women never change their last name after marriage. I've always found this interesting because keeping your last name in the U.S. is considered freeing. But in Asia, um, which is still very much conventional, it is tradition. And I've heard two reasons as to this. 
one, it keeps a woman as part of her proud family, and there's great importance placed on family names in Asia, which is why it's last name, then first name when said or written, which I didn't know. Um, and then number two, though she marries into the family, traditionally living with the extended family, she's still not part of it, and this is also a way of keeping her apart. There are many horror stories um, I've also heard um, that it's to not let her have claim on her children who take the father's last name. Granted, since Asian surnames aren't that varied, there may not be any difference between the couple's last names. Asian Americans who are raised in Western society, however, I've noticed do all three things, change, keep, and hyphenate. Interesting. Yeah. So thanks, Michelle. And uh, to continue with around the world tradition, we got several emails from Canadians who pointed out that um, in the French-Canadian province of Quebec, women must keep their maiden name when married. And so, um, as I said, numerous listeners email us about this, but I'm going to read from Elizabeth, who copied and pasted the law, which says both spouses keep their birth names after marriage and continue to exercise their civil rights under that name i.e. they must use their birth name in contracts, on credit cards, on their driver's license, etc. This rule applies to all spouses domiciled in Quebec, even if they were married outside Quebec. However, women married before April 2nd, 1981, who were already using their husband's surname before that date, may continue to exercise their civil rights under their married name. And Elizabeth goes on to explain that this um, ruling was adopted in 1981 to promote both gender equality and to preserve the heritage of traditional French surnames. Newlyweds can go through the same legal official name change application process as somebody wanting to change their name for other reasons. However, marriage is not listed as one of the reasons for a name change to be granted. And as such, women are usually forced to keep their main name. It is a contentious issue among some Quebecers as and adds fuels perpetual fire between English and French-speaking Quebecers. Very cool. And uh, to round things out, Molly, I have a correction that I caught when I was listening to our podcast on um, whether or not menstruation is the last taboo. Uh And I incorrectly said that Suzanne Summers was a star in all of the family. And I am so wrong. That was Three's Company, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually Sally Struthers' character that I was trying to refer to. So I'm sorry, the all double you, S. all in the family fans. I realized my mistake, and it was Sally Struthers. Okay. And that's it. So, guys, if you want to check out what me and Molly are doing during the week, head over to our blog called How To Stuff. And if you um, want to read about a lot of different things... Not burlesque, but a lot of different things aside from burlesque. You can go check out our wonderful website called HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. 
whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.